Hello, it's Stan Stoniker coming at you from Hub Culture, Emerald City. In the context of New York Climate Week, every September, leaders from around the world gather for the UN General Assembly in New York, the meeting that pulls together everybody focused on global issues related to the United Nations. And in the context of that is New York Climate Week, which is a gathering of thousands of people who are working together to find solutions for the global climate issue that we face. Now, this year, of course, everything is happening virtually. So our virtual Climate Week is kicked off inside of Emerald City, our virtual reality platform. And joining me now for a conversation is the fantastic Carl Burkhart, who's the managing director of One Earth. One Earth is the only philanthropic initiative dedicated to achieving the 1.5 degree target for climate change, which basically means the amount of global warming that would be considered survivable by our society. Now, Carl, welcome to our uh, little virtual show here. It's great to see you. Good to be here with you, virtually. Yeah, so I've known you, Carl, for a long time, and I've seen the work you did previously at the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation and uh, at Tick, Tick, Tick many years ago with Bill McKibben, looking at the idea of how we can collectively solve some climate change issues. And I remember years ago, even at the hub back in Copenhagen, there was this talk about the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere reaching 350 parts per million, and that being this really big target that we didn't want to go past. And of course, we did go past it. We blew past it. We're now at over 410 parts per million in the atmosphere. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see the big picture for people who don't necessarily understand the the context of what we talk about with these targets, whether it's parts per million or the 1.5 degree imperative? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very constantly moving target, <laughs> if you will. What, what's happening right now is called CMIP-6, which is the sort of technical working body that will be reporting in to create the IPCC's sixth global assessment report. So that's coming out next year. That what that's going to do is number crunch thousands of climate models and probably trillions of data points to every, you know, every year we get closer and closer um, to understanding exactly what a ton of carbon emitted equals in terms of warming and parts per million. And the physics around that is extraordinarily complex. <laughs> and one of the big things that's happening in this round is we're having to adjust the sensitivity models that show what a certain amount of emissions equals in terms of warming. And, and there's many different reasons for that, but one of the interesting ones is related to nature's own reaction to climate change, right? Which we're seeing right now, we saw in Australia fires, we're seeing it in the California fires now, is that nature is like a country contributing its own emissions as the planet warms. And so those haven't been well accounted for our a climate model we funded and released last year at Davos was a, one of the first ones to really build in a buffer for these nature's feedbacks, so they call them biosphere feedbacks. So that's one of the aspects that's going to getting clearer, and it's a very complex thing <laughs> to explain. I'm happy to go into it, but any of your listeners, I would say, don't feel bad if it doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> because it's incredibly complicated. But yes. So just, you want me to go to the parts per million. So 350 parts per million, that was the famous um, 350.org, which Bill McKibben started. So 
early industrial levels, when human civilization sort of really began to boom, we were about 300 parts per million, actually 280, if you wanna be specific for, for pre-industrial levels. So call it 300 parts per million. And Bill McKibben had been tracking a lot of science saying once we passed 350, we were entering the beginning of sort of uncharted territory and possibly a danger zone for humanity. Well, we're now, like you said, I think we're fourth, you know, and you have to look at averages of part, parts per million because it fluctuates, like the atmosphere breathes in and out just like a human, but we're probably somewhere between 410 and 415 parts per million now. So roughly 450 parts per million could be, we think, equivocated with, with 1.5 degrees of long-term global average temperature rise. So those are, all of those words are very important because long-term, because you can have a temporary spike in temperatures that can go back down. And you can also have regional variations. Like right now, Australia, well, in December, January, Australia was at a 1.5 regional average temperature rise. And Saudi Arabia was, we have in the, in, in, at our Antarctica, we have three degrees above global average, uh, for global average temperature rise. So the planet is warming unevenly, but the global average temperature rise looks at, looks at the whole planet as a whole. And at 1.5 C, we believe that is the absolute tipping point of where it, it's, it's pretty difficult to imagine how humanity survives beyond that 1.5 C or roughly, let's say 450 parts per million. And, and just for a reference, one gigaton of CO2 emitted is, is equal to about 7.7 parts per, sorry, the other way around. One part per million is equal to 7.7 .7 gigatons of, of CO2. So gigatons of CO2 do we release a year, typically? Any idea? 40. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think it, for a lot of people, especially in America, I, I think they get lost between the 1.5 degrees Celsius and what that means in Fahrenheit, but basically 1.5 degrees Celsius is almost like 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're talking yeah. about degrees temperature rise approximately? I mean, I was just having a conversation with someone about this, and part of me wishes we had the whole kind of collective of climate science hadn't really latched on to the degree of temperature rise because people are familiar with temperature and like it's five degrees hotter than it was last month. But what we're talking about with 1.5 C is really, it's almost an abstract. It's a co compilation of a lot of data points collected all around the world have to do with mean average temperatures in the oceans and land. And so it's not really a good barometer, pun intended, on how you would intuitively understand 1.5 C. Because it, there's, there's more extreme temperature growth at the poles, right? Where you're seeing 10 to 15 degrees of... Exactly. Um, and the scientists knew that that would be the case. This isn't like, I think, I think some of the models were underestimated the, the, the speed of melting in the poles. I think also all of the models underestimate the emissions, the natural emissions coming out of, in particular, out of the Arctic. From That's the ground. coming out in three forms. And we actually were funding a paper on this right now. It's coming from carbon dioxide and being emitted through natural processes and also fire and methane. So there's different gases coming out and those big sinkholes in Siberia are probably associated with big you know releases of emissions so that's 
worrying because that's adding some to the emissions pile. And uh, we did peak emissions last year, even before COVID. I was just in Saudi Arabia for the G20 climate working group. And there was a presentation, right? Like literally just as COVID was sort of breaking out. And one of the lead people from the IEA was there talking about their that their latest number crunching was that we had peaked emissions in 2019. So emissions are were very gradually declining. Then COVID happened and they literally went off a cliff and we have to see what that's gonna mean, but probably it will be something akin to, I mean, our my internal estimate is 13% this year will be uh, versus last year and reduction of total emissions. What we need to be on track for 1.5C, we actually need to be doing about 10% reduction per year, which is sort of staggering if you think about it, but that is what's required. We have to be rapidly decreasing our emissions right now. Yeah, because I mean, this was one of the shocks to me is that when you look at how devastating and huge and abrupt the change in society has been because of COVID, and then you realize that that change still doesn't actually hit the targets that we need to be able to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, it's actually very sobering. Well, this year is actually more than we needed theoretically. Like the climate model that we funded was looking at about eight to 10% per year reduction, which is a lot, <laughs> but we're way over that. Like I think the last accounting was 17% up until the summer. We have to see what the fall is gonna be. But that's not the way we want to decarbonize, right? We won't, We don't want to decarbonize by like hundreds of thousands of people dying and economies shutting down. But that. But the thing is that that is how it will go down if governments don't start decarbonizing. And and so now we we have all the technology we need to decarbonize. We know exactly how to do it. We know where to build all the wind turbines and the solar plants and how to get a lot more efficiency out of buildings and shifting to green mobility, which includes electric vehicles, also includes, you know, better mass transit and it includes sustainable fuels. And there's all these things we know we need to do. It's just that everyone is sort of like waiting for everyone to press the go button. Really, that's kind of what it feels like. So they're going to have to start pressing really fast soon. Well, it seems like every year that goes by that we don't press that button, the obstacle becomes more daunting. The Reality is that we're seeing massive effects right now, whether it's ocean acidification or, you know, most recently the fires in the Pacific Northwest. Let's talk about those fires for a second. You know, I know that a lot of people feel that climate change is a role in the strength and breadth of these fires. And because of the fact that you're having drought across the West, things are drier. But do you think that there are other indications or other sources for these fires that go beyond just climate change, or is it really a climate change story? No, I, great question and really well put. Yeah, it's, it's as always, it's complicated. <laughs> climate change is only ever a driver of change. I mean, increasing temperatures is only a driver of change. So hurricanes have been happening in the Atlantic for hundreds of years, and there's been some historic hurricanes, but their frequency will increase with, with as the ocean temperatures increase. Similarly, the drier, you know, climate change will create drying more aridification in some areas than others. And that if those areas have a lot of fuel in the form of trees, that could mean that it's easier to light them. I think the combination, like what we saw, I don't know as much about how it all started in Australia. 
I mean, we know that in California, there were clusters of lightning strikes, which were actually quite unusual, which probably is its own interesting science behind it. We'll have to figure out more. But, but really, at the end of the day, it was, you know, one of the main reasons it took off was a party with someone lit, lit some fireworks off. And so there's still this clearly policy has not opened its eyes to the urgency of the situation in California, the Pacific Northwest. So hopefully that will happen. <laughs> Gavin Newsom, for instance, tweeted very famously, you know, how many more fires, I don't know the exact number that there were previously in years previously, and he said, climate change is real, and all caps. And I was like, great, that's good. He, he did that, but he also approved like thousands of permits for the oil and gas industry. So how do these politicians keep saying one thing and doing another? When, when are we gonna say that's not okay? And so actually that's another topic, <laughs> but like I, I wanted to point out, there's this political dimension to this. And the other thing is we have also probably really bad force management. So I hate to say it, but partially Donald Trump is right. And he's like, oh, it has nothing. He's like, it doesn't have anything to do with climate change. It's force management. Well, it has to do with climate change and it has to do with force management. And the indigenous people of the region for thousands of years had methods to reduce these huge roaring fires that are possible in in california and they those they were illegalized literally they were made illegal like indigenous people could not practice those protective measures and so they didn't and then we had governments coming in who actually didn't know what they were doing and we had poor force management on top of it so now fortunately gavin newsom is bringing back those indigenous practices and there'll be i'm sure a lot coming out after we're all done with this on how do we scale and implement indigenous practices to better manage the situation. So, so that reaction and connection between indigenous practices for nature, because I've read that up to 80% of the world's most important biodiverse places are actually under the care of indigenous peoples. And it does point a really strong, you know, laser towards this idea that protecting nature also has to do with protecting indigenous groups. And I know that One Earth has been active with building something called the Global Safety Net, and then from that, these bioregions. Can you talk about what is the Global Safety Net and how that has led to this understanding of what, what you guys call bioregions? Yeah, sure. Like, well, the Global Safety Net is, uh, it has a very strong indigenous rights message sort of embedded. And, and we're, and I also should mention like, we're not the only philanthropy focusing on achieving 1.5C, but that is our mission statement, which is quite unusual for a philanthropy to hone in on that. But Grounded, I think, you know, Grounded, they're a great example. They're totally committed to the 1.5C target. And for a lot of other foundations have been moving on to the 1.5C target recently. So that's good. But in terms of indigenous rights, I think a lot of people are becoming aware of this now. So that's the statistic that's really interesting is that 80% of the world's biodiversity is on indigenous lands. It's very concentrated on indigenous lands. And what the Global Safety Net paper did, which was a two and a half year scientific process that was peer reviewed and just published last week, looks at, it's the first attempt to look at all of the world's lands globally that are important biologically. So either for biodiversity in a number of ways or for ecosystem services. And it maps all of those at one kilometer scale to understand where is the, the biodiverse, where's the land that's important for biodiversity 
in each country, in each ecoregion. And then we did an overlap at the end with indigenous territories, which are also not as well documented as they should be, right? Um, so that's a whole other project. But the finding of that was that we, we have about 50%, it's actually 50.4% of the world's land is currently acting as like a harbor for biodiversity and, and helping to balance our climate by storing carbon and so forth or absorbing carbon. 37% of all that land is on indigenous territory. So more than a third of all the land that we need to protect is indigenous land, right? And then in addition to that, there's another paper that's coming out, I think this week, which looks at local community lands. So in some governments, they don't actually recognize indigenous people anymore. So there's different ways of de designating them, but communally held lands is a good general description. We think that probably at something like at least 50% of that 50% is indigenous and communally held. And that would mean in Africa, it could be tribes, but it could also be communities that have been on the land for a long time. And there's other designations in different parts of the world. So these communally held lands are really the key to protecting biodiversity. That's where all the biodiversity is concentrated. So we take, at One Earth, we take a very strong rights-based approach to conservation, which is kind of a novel concept. I mean, I think people think of conservation, they think of old white guys with tweed jackets, you know, and fencing things away where there's a rare species. And actually we find that, you know, it's the indigenous lands that seem to outperform a lot of conventional protected fenced-in kind of conservation areas. So we're with the last year, we published something called the Global Deal for Nature, which really called for this rights-based, rights-centered um, approach to conservation. And I think there's being, there's certainly a lot more lip service happening for indigenous lands, um, whether that actually makes its way out into policy and into the upcoming UN Biodiversity Convention that's happening next year in China. That's what we have to see. We're hoping that it's a game changer and indigenous lands can now really be woven in to the fabric of the convention rather than being sidelined, which has kind of been in the past. Do you think that the struggle between indigenous lands and rights with the interests of, you could argue the nation state, present a scenario for longer term conflict? And when I say that, I'm really thinking about Brazil and Bolsonaro and you know his attempts to mitigate indigenous rights in favor of oil companies or cattle ranchers or others who are looking to exploit the land for economic gain in a, in a, in a different way than, um, say, indigenous people use the land. Do you think that's like the long-term fight? Is that the big struggle? Yeah, I mean, it's one of them, you know, the, uh, the rise of authoritarianism, you know, has different reasons. It, it, and I think in Brazil, kind of like in the United States, it's because a lot of people are being left behind. And so they like scapegoats. And he's been using that for political gain, just essentially scapegoating indigenous people, for example, for blocking a dam, which would give them, quote unquote, green energy, but is also would destroy, you know, a huge chunk of the Amazon rainforest. So, yeah, it is going to be, I think. You know, you know, I don't know if it's going to be worse or better. It ha it's been really rough <laughs> the past 10 years, honestly. So I don't know if it's going to get worse or better. But Bolsonaro and Trump both, you know, are looking at rolling back those designations, which is why the UN is as kind of annoying and bureaucratic as they can be. These UN conventions are important because if commitments are made, and Brazil is one of the most biodiverse countries in the world, 
if commitments are made in that convention, then other governments have leverage. For example, you know, some governments are actually donors to Brazil in terms of development, and maybe they won't be donors to Brazil if, if Brazil keeps burning all their rainforest down. So I think that there's, there's leverage that happens from these multilateral agreements, which is why I think, I do think it's really important that it gets reflected. But yeah, how it trickles out to national policy is always tricky because authoritarians like to shun these, these sort of global or multilateral agreements and become very protectionist and nativist, you know, and uh, isolationist, which is what's also happening in the United States. So, I mean, I think that's going, it is going to be definitely a messy 10 years for sure. So let's pivot back to this um, concept of the bioregions for a moment. Can you tell us from your work in One Earth and the work that's been done around the global safety net, are there three or four places that you could highlight that are the most important ones in this? I know that every one is important and there are hundreds in the in the map, but are there any that stick out to you as being particularly like urgent that we put resource and effort towards saving? Yeah, well, there's two questions. I'll talk about the bioregions first, and then we can talk about the hot spots is one way of defining them. And so actually the bioregions really relates well to your last question, which is about, you know, indigenous land territories existed long before someone drew a line on a map um, saying this Colombia is over here and Brazil's over here, right? And same Peru and Ecuador, there's tribes that actually straddle across that boundary all the time. So how are, like, we have this question is like, well, if nature could draw a map, what would it look like? We're so used to defining everything, everything we experience in the world around that map. And we probably all visit Google Maps every day and we see the countries and the countries define how we think about everything. And because that's how the political power is structured. But like, is that the best way of looking at things? Probably not. You know, indigenous people have not looked at it that way, and they've been here for thousands of years before people were drawing lines on maps. So that was the question behind the bioregions. And so it took quite a while, but we landed on, which we'll be rolling out in a couple of weeks on our website. And then we have an event at Climate Week also on it. It says 184 bioregions. So they're, you kind of think of them as like nature's countries. And those are really interesting because they're defined by common families of or assemblages of plants and animals. And those, the building blocks of those are called the ecoregions. And those are, there's 846 terrestrial ecoregions. So the bioregions groups those and uses geomorphology, essentially like land structures of the land. So it could be mountain ranges or plateaus or basins or valleys to kind of describe these shapes of these nature's countries. It also includes the rivers that run through them and the oceans that are adjacent to them. So as far as we know, it's the first time anyone's done this at global scale and it maybe it's kind of crazy, but we thought, you know, the world is crazy. So why not come up with a different way of looking at the world? <laughs> so that's essentially what the bioregions is. But to your second question, one of the main reasons we wanted to create them is because we wanted a way for people to learn more about the place they call home or the place they would consider like their place, you know, and maybe we all have it. It could be where you're born. Like I was born in upstate New York in a farm. So that for me always kind of is like home. 
But what is that bioregion? What are the ecoregions there? What are the native species that are there? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> and and I'm here even, and I, I moved to Philadelphia. And I'm in the country here outside of Philadelphia, and there's beautiful long woods, all these trails, and I don't know anything about the native species or the animals that were here. We had a bear sighting last week, and my dogs freaked out, and wouldn't leave the front door, and I we like looked it up, and there was a bear. You know what kind of bears are here? It's sort of like. <laughs> is this world we take for granted like oh, we're obsessed with the news that we read every day but like there's this whole other thing going on and and that's what the idea of the bioregions came in it's like well learn like join your bioregion learn about it and then figure out how can you help build the global safety net in your bioregion and and each what what we're trying to do now and it's a big project but we're we have 40 scientists working with us who are identifying projects right now mostly focused on environmental like conservation but we also have energy clean energy projects as well and uh, regenerative agriculture as well we want to get into that more so the idea is that each bioregion would have like a, a, a group of projects that are like super super important um, for people if they want to give something to nature in their backyard what projects should they give to so that's kind of what we're rolling out now this fall and we kind of call it like democratizing philanthropy. We wanna, we wanna be able to make available all the resources we have to the broader public so people can just get more engaged with nature and understand it and hopefully understand in some cases the tribes have gone, you know, like in my area, there were all of these names of the places here, like the Wissahickon is the woods, those were all Native American names. Half the streets are named from tribal names, but the tribes aren't here anymore. So, right. you know, there's that whole dimension of it too. We wanna eventually do a lot more st storytelling around um, and really open it up to the public to join in that. And so on that final point there, what are some of the hotspots that you guys have identified from these bioregions? Yeah, so I um, I wish you had Eric Dinnerstein as the co-author of this Global Safety Net paper. We will be showcasing about 100 projects coming up, which we consider sort of, uh, I he likes to call it the Global 100. It's like the 100 most important landscapes. The one, I'm just going to give you an example of one because I'm, I'm we're like pulling all this content together for the website now. So I'm just cherry picking one because <laughs> it's the one that's the most recent, but it's so cool. It's the very, it's a rainforest in Russia. Like most people would not even imagine there was a rainforest in Russia. But the farthest, farthest southeast of Russia, there is this piece of land that, that jogs down along the coast and is, is, is an actual rainforest with all of these species that I didn't even know, I couldn't even believe they were real. Like it, it has these raccoon dogs which are like literally exact halfway between a raccoon and a dog and they hibernate and they're like super intelligent animals. It, they have these dinosaur looking, um, they're one of the biggest raptors with this blue face and like a 12 foot wingspan or something, practically like a dinosaur living there, four or five species of whales and, and the actual old growth forest is still intact there, even though there's been a lot of pressure on it for toilet paper from Japan. So imagine cutting all that down for Japanese people to wipe their butts. But yeah, so that's one that pops into mind, but we wanna have hundreds of these um, so that when you can go on your bioregion, you can actually see that project that's like the one really big project. It's gonna take us a while to index all these, but 
that's the vision of it. So Carl, before we wrap up here, um, as we sort of head into Climate Week and go through Climate Week, how can people get involved with One Earth and support the work that you guys are doing as a nonprofit organization? Well, sign up for our newsletter because go to oneearth.org. There's just tons of content on there about how we solve climate change and explains the global safety net in more detail. So there's lots to learn there, but you can also find your bioregion and sign up to get updates um, from One Earth. And eventually uh, we're going to be rolling something out the year fo following that is going to be a much more engaging platform for people. But yeah, I mean, I think also on social media, for, for sure, follow us at, at One Earth. And we always showcase really great projects, like when the fires were burning in the Amazon, there was a way you could donate to that. I think we'll be putting up something on the fires in the Pacific Northwest soon. So we, we will constantly feature projects that are, if you really want to give uh, resources to help, that will feature those. So Instagram's a really good way to kind of keep abreast as well. But yeah, but basically just get involved and vote and, you know, become a hero, a, a sort of a champion for nature in your own backyard, I would say. Yeah, great. So from, from global to local during Climate Week, that's Carl Burkhart from One Earth. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for giving us a primer on what 1.5 degrees means and what parts per million means of carbon in the atmosphere. Thanks for showing us a glimpse of an imaginary world with raccoon dogs and large blue raptors and really highlighting the importance of protecting our natural resources, our natural places, and helping to empower the indigenous communities that actually do that best. So thanks for joining us today, Carl. We'll see you on oneearth.org. And for the rest of you listening, we have more great content coming up this week from New York, the UN General Assembly Week and Climate Week, here on Emerald City, as well as our iTunes and SoundCloud formats. So thanks for joining.